Malachi chapter 2 this evening. Malachi chapter 2. I want us to consider a question together. And that is, how do we express our faithfulness to God? How do we express our faithfulness to God? Now, there's lots of answers that we could come up with. Some people may say that we express our faithfulness to God by telling Him that, that uh, we want to be faithful to Him. So we could do it through our tears. We could cry out to Him and, and show Him our faithfulness that way. But we understand that the best way to show our faithfulness to God is how? It is by simply being faithful. It's not enough to just simply give words uh, to what, what we're trying to do. We need to be faithful to God. And more specifically, it is being faithful in our relationships. Sometimes we say, okay, I want to be faithful to God. And we even sing about that sometimes. But we don't think about what that actually means. And so what God is looking for, I think, is, is, is where does that faithfulness show up? Okay, so let's think about our relationships. What kind of relationships are we involved in to uh, fellow believers, to our boss, to coworkers, to people in our family, our spouse? And, uh, and the, the relationship that we have with our spouse is the one that we want to look at tonight. The relationship that shows to God whether or not we are faithful to Him. And the loudest way that we can say to God, I am faithful, is simply to be faithful. And here we're going to talk about this faithfulness with regard to our spouse. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Let's read those together. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one who has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is the third dispute in the book of Malachi. We have three more to go after this one. And as you remember, the the structure of these disputes begins with an assertion by God. God makes a statement. The first one, we saw that God loved Israel. And then it follows with, after the assertion, you have a question from the people. They ask, how have you loved us, God? Or how have we, how have we profaned your altar at the second dispute? Here we see that the, this uh, assertion is give, given in verses 10 through 12. 
I'm sorry, 10 through 13. And then notice in verse 14, this is where the question is asked by the people. Yet you say, for what reason? So we have the assertion, the question by the people, and then the response by God. And that makes up the second part of verse 14 all the way through verse 16. And so what we find here is that God is doing most of the speaking. And that is uh, obviously the case because He's trying to show them what is on His mind with regard to their worship and their relationships. Tonight we're going to see that our faithfulness to God is expressed in our submission to His design for marriage. Our faithfulness to God is expressed in our submission to His design for marriage. And the first thing that we need to see, or that we should see in these verses, verses 10 through 12, is that God brings down an indictment on those who marry unbiblically. Those who marry unbiblically. And He begins here in verses 10 and 11 with His rejection of of the uh, those who reject the design in marriage that God has are considered to be unfaithful to God. Notice verses 10 and 11. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned uh, the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. There's a lot there that we need to unpack. And the first thing that we need to think about is why would God begin with a list of questions in verse 10 when He's making an assertion? He's trying to assert something. He's trying to make a statement and yet He begins with a list of questions. He says in verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then do we deal treacherously? I think in order to answer that, we need to understand what each of these questions mean. First of all, do we not at all have one Father? Now, before we can understand what that question means, we need to understand what that word we is referring to. See, that says, do we not all have one Father? Remember who's speaking here. This is Malachi speaking to the people of Israel. So he's saying, me and you, my readers or my hearers, do we not all have one Father? And the question here is, is who is this father that Malachi is talking about? If he's talking about the people of Israel, who is he talking about as his father? It could be that he's talking about his father Adam or their father Adam. That we all have one father in Adam. Or it could be that he's talking about his father Abraham. They're all people of Israel, right? Malachi and these, these readers, they all have the same father, Abraham or perhaps even Jacob, which has already been mentioned in chapter 1. But it's more likely that this is referring to God, the Father. Do we not all have one Father? And that's why some of you have in your translation that word Father capitalized, which refers to the, um, the Heavenly Father, God the Father. And I think that is the case. I think that is the correct interpretation because of the context that follows. Notice the next question. Has not one God created us? So it's as if he's restating the idea that comes in the first question. Do we not all have one Father, God, and has not one God created all of us? And then I think that it's even more clear in the end of verse 11 because it shows the contrast of what, what he's not looking for. And that is, to these people had been marrying the daughter of a foreign God. 
And so the question makes a lot more sense now if we understand what he's, he's arguing against. He's saying, don't go and marry the daughter of a foreign god. That would be wrong. Do we not all have one father? We all have one father, God. The same father who has created us. And as a result, we shouldn't go and marry somebody that's outside or out from underneath of who uh, God has, has, has brought to be a believer. And um, so why would we marry a different father? And the answer to this question is not listed, but it, it's a rhetorical question, and the answer would obviously be, uh, yes, we all do have one father. The next question that comes up is, has not one God created us? And obviously, we know who, who they're talking about. Okay, We're talking about the people of Israel. Has not one God created us? The thing that we need to understand is, what, what is he talking about when he says created? Is he talking about the initial creation that's taken place? Um, and I would suggest to you that it's not because he's actually saying that, yes, God has created all mankind, but what he's saying here is that he has created us as a special people. He, he's called us out from those foreign gods. And so in that sense, we were all created. This group of this covenant people has been created by God. And so, if that's the case, if we all have one Father, God, and He has created us as His covenant people, then look at the third question. This is where He's driving at. Why do we deal treacherously each against His brother so as to profane the covenant of our Father? The point is, that they had been profaning the covenant that had been passed down to them by their fathers in order to pursue their own desires. And so the question leaves the, the hearers with an answer in their minds, well, it doesn't make sense. If, God, if we all have one Father, God, and He has created us as His covenant people, it doesn't make sense for us to deal treacherously with people uh, inside of this covenant relationship. Now, uh, we need to understand next what does this term or this phrase deal treacherously mean because this comes up several times in the passage. And it simply means, it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Uh, it's got a sort of a harsh ring to it. It simply means to violate the covenant, to act wickedly, to undermine their obligations within their marriage specifically, as we'll see. And... Um, and so to deal treacherously simply means to, to violate one's covenant, something that they've already agreed to have, have been a part of, and they, they, they simply cut off that agreement they once had. So the common theme in all of these questions, in these first three questions, in which God is making really a statement, is that, that God is their Father, they are the covenant people, they have a relationship, they have a responsibility not only to God but to each other, to deal with each other rightly in a faithful way. So we could say, we could ask the question, okay? Imagine that you're a person of Israel, you could ask the question, well, how have we dealt treacherously to our brother? How have we done this? How have we gone against the covenant of our fathers? Verse 11 gives us the answer. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
Specifically, the end of the verse tells us that some of these people within this covenant relationship had married the daughter of a foreign god. But before that, it says that that this act that they had done is an abomination. It's about the strongest way you can say that you that that God hates it. It's something that God does not tolerate. Proverbs six, verses sixteen through nineteen. Uh, these six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to Him. It's something that He does not tolerate. And it goes on to talk about uh, a haughty eyes or a proud look, uh, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that are swift to be running into mischief, uh, lying tongues, and so on. He lists them all out. The point is, He doesn't tolerate these things. He hates those who are proud. And here He says, what, what you're doing here with regard to these relationships is wrong. It is something that, that I will not tolerate. And then in the, next, the very next phrase, uh, it says, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Now when we think of sanctuary, what do we think of? The very first thing that comes to my mind is a location, a place, a temple. Um, it seems like that may be the meaning that he's talking about. But Malachi had already talked about that. Remember in our... The dispute that we looked at last week, he's talking about how we, how the people had profaned the temple in bringing offerings that were not acceptable. He's moved on. Now he's talking about relationships within the covenant community. So I would say that this sanctuary is actually referring to God's people, the sanctuary of the Lord, these people, this relationship that they had with one another. And so they, God says that they have profaned this covenant relationship. And they did it by marrying the daughter of a foreign wife, uh, by, of a foreign god. And notice the wording to this, because sometimes what we can think is, well, they, they married a non-Jew. But notice it does not say that they married a daughter of a non-Jew. That's not the point here. The point is that they married a daughter of a foreign god. This is much worse. Uh, obviously, they, there, there were allowances for marrying non-Jews, uh, particularly when you got later in the law. But, but this is marrying the daughter of a foreign god. This was never allowed. That's why God calls it dealing treacherously, an abomination. He, he hates it. He will not tolerate it. Um, they were marrying the daughter of, of a false god, of someone other than the true and living God. So, so how could a foreign god have a daughter? Okay. I mean, if you think about that, how could a foreign god have a daughter? Because gods are usually mythical creatures or, or usually dead. Uh, how could a foreign god have a daughter? And how could a, a, a Jew marry such a person? Well, you have to understand what the terms son of and daughter of mean in the Scriptures. Remember, Jesus was called the Son of Man. He's also called the Son of God. That doesn't mean that uh, that He was birthed by God or something like that or that He was birthed by man necessarily, but it is that He takes on the characteristics of or He has the characteristics of. So in other words, if, if, uh, if uh, Isaac was the son of Abraham, they would understand that that would mean that Isaac takes on the characteristics of his father. In fact, in John chapter 5, Verses 17 and 18. Um, in fact, let's turn there because I think this is a helpful way to understand what we're looking at here. 
the chief priests and the scribes, I believe here, are ready to kill Jesus. The uh, specifically the Jews. John chapter five verse. Let's begin with verse sixteen. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But he answered them. That is Jesus. He answered them. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, do you see the connection that they're making? When Jesus calls God His own Father, what does it say at the end of the verse? How do they understand that? If Jesus calls God His own Father, what does it say at the end of the verse? He was, in essence, making Himself equal with God. Now, we understand that that's true, but they didn't believe that. And so they were crying out heresy. And they wanted to destroy Him all the more. And that's because of their their understanding of the Son of or the Daughter of. So, what we're talking about here in our passage is when it says the daughter of a foreign god, we're talking about a daughter that takes on the characteristics of a foreign god. Do you understand? The daughter that takes on the characteristics of a foreign god, just like son of would be to take on the characteristics of. And obviously, that sort of practice was prohibited by God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and we'll see this. Deuteronomy Chapter 7. To marry outside of the believing community of Israel was prohibited by God. It was against God's command. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them from before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. Show no favor to them. And then notice, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So there's a strict prohibition against marrying outside of this covenant community. Community Jews were not supposed to be marrying daughter daughters of foreign wives or, or sons of foreign wives, for that matter. And notice the reason why. Verse 4, why was marrying an unbeliever prohibited? Verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will quickly destroy you. Why were they prohibited from marrying outside of the covenant community? Because God would no longer be their God. Once they married into this other relationship, then they would start to follow that other God. Can you think of an example where this took place? I mean, think of Solomon, right? He married daughters from all over the world. And as a result, we find at the end of Solomon's life, these women turned his heart away from God to the point where he was 
offering sacrifices to Moab and to to Molech um, and, and some of these despicable gods. And uh, and so obviously God was completely against it. And by the way, it is still prohibited by God. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter six. That is not that we cannot marry uh, outside of our own ethnic race, but that we should not be marrying outside of, or I should say it's prohibited to marry outside of the believing community. If you are a believer, it is it is against God's will, against God's law to marry outside of that. Chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? There is still this prohibition against marrying outside of the the believing community. We have a responsibility um, for those who are single to marry other believers. Turn back to Malachi chapter 2. Rejecting God's design in marriage shows our unfaithfulness to God But then in verse 12, we see that rejecting God's design for marriage is hated by God. As a response to those who reject His design, He brings down a a, um, a curse. Verse 12, As for the man who does this, that is, marries the daughter of a foreign god, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. The tents of Jacob are to be cut off from them. That is, they are to be cut out from this covenant agreement that God had with them to provide blessing for them. And then at the end of the verse, we see that no matter how many sacrifices this person brings to God, he deserves to be eliminated from the line because he has broken this covenant agreement that he's had with God. And so we should not reject God's design in marriage. But then next we need to see that we should not reject God's design for divorce. God indicts those who divorce unbiblically. Verses 13 through 16. The first thing we see is in verses 13 and 14 that insincere sorrow over unbiblical divorce is hated by God. Insincere sorrow over unbiblical divorce is hated by God. Verse 13, we see his rejection of their insincere sorrow. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They were crying out to God. They were going through all the motions of showing that they, it appeared that they, they were concerned about God and what he wanted, but their sorrow was a sorrow that did not lead to repentance, like we read about in the New Testament. And God is not fooled. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-10. through 10. God would not accept their tears. It didn't matter how much they cried. They, they, they asked why. Notice at the beginning of verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Why will you not accept our tears? Why will you not accept our offerings? And the reason God gives is in verse 14, and that is that God takes marriage seriously. 
God takes marriage seriously. Notice uh, verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? And then he responds, Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God says, here it is in a nutshell. You want to know why I don't accept your offerings? You know why I don't accept your tears? It's because you've dealt treacherously with your spouse. Now, how had they done this? How had they dealt treacherously? We saw before that they had broken the covenant by uh, marrying outside of the believing community. But here it is because they, they went back on their commitment to their, their individual spouses. They, they unbiblically divorced them. And so as a result, God's saying, I'm not accepting them. Instead, you need, to, you need to maintain this relationship between the wife of the covenant. And God's saying, it's so serious, this covenant relationship that you have with your spouse, that you cannot break it uh, unless for biblical reasons. Um, the wife by covenant, I think... Uh, highlights for us how seriously God takes this marriage relationship. And I think it would be helpful for us to turn over to Mark chapter 10 and see how God does take marriage seriously and He takes divorce very seriously. Mark chapter 10. And we'll review some, some verses that we looked at on Sunday morning not too long ago. Mark chapter 10, verse but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh one of the reasons that God takes marriage and divorce very seriously is because of his design in creation he as the creator designed for there to be a one man and one woman relationship whether they would join together and remain married for the, the, uh, for the rest of their lives. A one flesh union. And this is a timeless principle because he's saying they, they are to leave their father and mother. And obviously we understand that Adam and Eve did not have parents. So he's saying that all those who have a father and mother, okay, obviously Adam and Eve were even included in that, all those who have been born are to maintain this marriage relationship. And then we see uh, God takes it seriously in verse 9 because of His hand that He specifically has in marriage. Notice Mark 10, verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God took responsibility. He, he's saying, I'm the one who joined these two together. And so if you tear them apart, you're tearing apart what I have put together. And that is not acceptable. God has, has His hand in marriage. He has glued them together and he sh they should not be separated in that sense. So, so as a result, we, if, if God takes marriage seriously, if God takes divorce seriously, then we ought to do the same thing. Turn back to Malachi chapter 2 because we need to see that, um, that divorce, yes, is serious before God and that He rejects insincere sorrow. But here in verses 15 and 16, we see that unbiblical divorce is hated by God. It's hated by God. Verse 15, 
but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Let's stop there. Now this is a little bit of a challenge. Actually, it's a huge challenge to try to understand what this first part of verse 15 says. Some people would say that this is perhaps the most difficult verse in the Bible to understand. And part of the reason is I think that our translators have come up with different understandings of what the original actually said. In your translation, you probably have this, like like I have in front of me, you have it in the form of a statement or a declaration. But I believe in the original, it was actually written in the form of a question. So it should have been, uh, it should have said something like this. Did, did not He make one? Instead of, but not one has done so, who has the remnant of the Spirit. It should say, did He not make one? And the remnant of the Spirit is simply referring to not the Holy Spirit, as some of your translations have a capital S there referring to the Holy Spirit. It should be referring to the individual spirit, the individual life within each person. And I say that because notice the end of the verse, or the second part of the verse. Take heed then to your spirit. So really the questioning should go something like this. Has not God made them one? even with a remnant of the Spirit or a remnant of life belonging to them. If God has made them one, if God has joined them together in marriage, then should not each one recognize the life that is in them that God has given to them? And what is the purpose of this union that God has made? Notice the second part. Uh, well, let's look at the beginning of the verse again. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? I think he brings this point up, the godly offspring, because the, God, the way in which God many times brings people to Christ is through their godly parents. Do you realize that? And, and so what he's saying is, if you take apart two believers, if they, if they become divorced in an unbiblical way, what you've done now is you've not only harmed that relationship, that covenant between the two of those people and with God, but also you've harmed the children that, that are to come or the children that are already there. And as a result, you've, you've harmed the godly offspring that could have come. You realize that this is one of the primary ways in which God brings people to Christ through their believing parents. Let's just take a poll right now. How many of you came to Christ after both of your parents had already come to Christ? Just raise your hand. Okay, almost everybody in here. The very few of you had unbelieving parents or maybe perhaps still do, but, but many of us came to Christ as a result of our parents. And this is what God is saying. And what, and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? You, you've, you've blown this opportunity to raise up your children in a way that would honor God and bring them to Christ. And so, so in that sense, God hates their unbiblical divorce. So what should they do about this? What is the remedy? Verse 15 at the end of the verse it says, this is what they should do. Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Now, this also is a little bit uh, difficult to understand. My, at my first reading, it's, when I first read this, it sounds 
Like, don't allow someone else to deal treacherously against your wife. But that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, and I think that's because the translation is a little bit uh, misleading in that way. They they take more of a literal approach to it and, and don't understand what the whole context is talking about, I think. It should be, let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. So here's the point. We all have one father. He's created us into this covenant community. Some of us have gone outside that community and married daughters of foreign gods. Others of us have have gone against the wife of our youth. So here's here's the here's the uh, command or the the assertion, the, the response that these people should have. Take heed to your own spirit so that you don't deal treacherously, so that you don't break that covenant, violate that covenant with the wife of your youth. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for us to try to stop that from happening with someone else. And so I think that's the way that the pronouns should be working there. And what we find in verse 16 is that unbiblical divorce is wrong. Unbiblical divorce is wrong. And verse 16 reads, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this text has been a proof text for many people to prove God's hatred of divorce. And there is an element of truth to that, that He does hate unbiblical divorce, if we qualify it in that way, that God does hate unbiblical divorce. But there are some divorces that He doesn't hate, right? We have the exceptions in Matthew chapter 19, right? When Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So he's saying if there is there there are some exceptions. There are some biblical reasons for getting a divorce. So in that sense we can't say that God hates that if he's made an allowance for it. And what a lot of people do is use this as a proof text for saying that that there should be no divorce ever, ever. There's no exceptions. And so they go right to this one and say, see what God says here? He hates it. But actually, this this text, like some some of the other ones in our passage today, is, is, I think, a wrong translation. And the reason I say that is because the original actually reads, he hates divorce, says the Lord God of of Israel and him who covers his garment with wrong. And and it doesn't seem to make sense if you think about it for God to say about himself. He's the one that's saying it, right? Doesn't it say says the Lord of hosts? Why would he say about himself he hates divorce? And so what the translators have done is they say, well that original that says he hates divorce, that doesn't seem to make sense. So let's change it to I hate divorce because no one usually talks about themselves in the third person. It would be like saying, um, you know, if I'm talking about myself, I would say, he is preaching up here right now. Well, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And so what the translators have done is they say, they change it to I. But perhaps, and I think this is a better translation, it should read, for he hates, that is, this one that's dealing treacherously. Okay, follow the argument that's going through this passage. It is, he hates this person who has gone against the wife of his youth, the wife of his covenant, he hates and divorces. And as a result, says the Lord of hosts, he brings upon himself this garment of violence or this garment of wrong. 
And that to me makes a lot more sense than, than the way that our translations tend to bring it out. This covering of garments is simply an outward expression of what is inside. And, uh, and so what we should understand about this is that yes, God does hate divorce, but we need to qualify that by saying that God hates unbiblical divorce. God hates unbiblical divorce. And so this text should not be used in that way. Rather, it should read, for he hates the person who deals treacherously and he divorces. And as a result, says the Lord of hosts, he brings upon himself judgment or garments of wrong. Now, Malachi concludes in verse 16, speaking of... or. Allowing God to speak through him, he says this at the end of the verse, So, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There's a call to faithfulness here. If God hates, to, if God hates when people act in this way, God hates this unbiblical divorce, or when people go outside of the believing community and marry, then you need to start being faithful to God and to your, your believing community. And what I hope you have seen in this passage is the strong language that is used that talks about violating the, this, this sanctified relationship that we have with, with each other and with God. Let's go back through and, and notice the strong language and we'll just put them all together. Verse 10 says that they are dealing treacherously and profaning the covenant. Verse 11 says... Deal, they have dealt treacherously and profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off these people. Verse 14, they have dealt treacherously against the wife of their wife of covenant. Verse 15, do not deal treacherously. And then verse 16, the one who does this covers himself with wrong or with violence. So if God is serious about marriage and God is serious about divorce, then we need to take divorce and marriage seriously like God does. So that means for us, for those of us who are married, that we need to take our own marriage seriously. We should never allow ourselves to get into a place where we have thoughts of separation. Where we get to a place where, where you know what, I wonder what it would be like if... We should never get to that sort of place because God takes this relationship seriously. And so that means that we need to cultivate that relationship. We need to make sure that we're working hard at, at, at making it a better relationship, a more God-honoring relationship. And, and maybe the, the exhortation that I could, could give to you would be simply this. Keep working at your marriage relationship until you get to a point where it matches the love that Christ has for the church or, ladies, the submission that the church is supposed to have for Christ. Keep working at, at it until that point. When you get there, let me know. But until that time, keep working at it. So take your own marriage seriously. Then secondly, I think this, this passage teaches us, and, and we should understand from it, that we should take all marriage relationships seriously. We are part of of a group of people within our church and we should take other people's marriage relationships seriously. There's lots of ways that we could apply this to our lives, but I just want to, to give us one. And that is, we need to help hold other people accountable in their marriage relationship. When they start getting these feelings of doubt or, 
or you know what, I don't know if this was the one, I don't know if this was my soulmate, and, and now I need, to, I need to move on to another relationship. Well, we have a responsibility to go and rescue them and show them, listen, you need to stay glued together because what God has joined together, let no person put asunder. And particularly if we have been a witness at that wedding ceremony, we have a responsibility. That's the kind of the purpose of the witness. We talked about this morning in Sunday school. We were talking about covenants and, and all of the, the things that go into them. It requires there to be witnesses there. Nobody gets married on their own. There always has to be a preacher, right? And then two witnesses, at least two witnesses. And that comes over from the Old Testament. If, if we were there when someone was married, we have an even further responsibility to, to make sure that they are staying true to that commitment. Um, and then if, if you are single, obviously you need to, to take marriage seriously in the sense that you need to recognize that you need to be looking for a, a believing spouse. Someone who already knows God. Don't try the evangelistic dating because by the time your, your heart has already been sold to that person, then, then you will be long past all, of the, uh, all the desires to follow what God wants. And so any sort of of yes, I've accepted Christ. I'll, I'll now I can marry you, type of thing. Any any time that other person says that, you're you're sold because you you've you've already given them your heart in a way. And then we need to. I think it, this passage helps us to to see somewhat of a sense of what God feels like when He is wronged. Okay, have you been wronged in your marriage? Has your spouse done something to you that was that was uh, pretty unresponsible or pretty unfaithful or pretty mean-spirited? Has your spouse done something like that to you? Well, do you realize that, that God has that sort of feeling that you have when they did that to you? God has that sort of feeling all the time when His people are unfaithful to Him. He's entered into a covenant with them. He, he wants to see them grow into a position of godliness where He can live among them but as a result, they, they've rejected Him. When you start to feel that, it gives you a sense of what God feels about you sometimes. And so that's not a bad thing. It helps us to see a little bit of, of the grace of God that He has, has provided for us. Marriage is a holy, holy estate, so don't deal treacherously by tearing apart what God has joined together. Uphold the fabric of marriage even down to the smallest little thread. Don't allow that to come unraveled at any point. And when you see that start to come unraveled, work hard at, at getting that sewn back up so that that marriage relationship can be as solid as God wants it to be. So we have a responsibility. We need to go from here and work on our relationships within our church, specifically within our marriage. And that means that... that that we need to be faithful in these areas. And when we are faithful in these areas, we show that we're faithful to God. That God, I want to be faithful to You and here's how I'm doing it. It's a very loud expression of, of our love for Him. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word and how it instructs us and it sometimes hits us between the eyes where we need to be hit sometimes in order to understand 
where we we are and where we need to be. And Lord, you know that we are far away from from per- perfect, from where we ought to be based on the the privileges that we've received. We've got a long way to go. We are we are work in progress. And yet you are patient with us. You are slow to anger with us. You maintain your loving relationship with us. You continue to pour out upon us grace. You give us mercies that are new every morning. And Your faithfulness never fails, even when we are unfaithful in our relationships. And we pray that You'd help us to to, uh, to work hard at strengthening our relationships, specifically for those of us who are married. That You would give us grace to do what is right in our relationships. And that we would love our spouse just as You love us. And we pray that we'd never be satisfied until we are at a place where where um, where you are exalted in our marriages and in our church. And we pray that you would give us the strength to obey. We, it's easy for us to say that we want to obey in, in this area, but then when we get down to it in the, the times of life when it's difficult, when there's stress and pressures all around, it's easy to back down on, on our desires, our ultimate desire to serve you, and so we pray that you give us grace in the day-to-day exercises of, of relating with these people. And we also pray for those who are single and who are um, thinking about marriage in the future. We just pray that you'd give wisdom and grace as they uh, seek a godly spouse and that you would provide one that would help uh, these to grow in, in their love for you. And we pray that it would be a picture uh, in a small way of what Christ has done for the church, the love that He shows and the submission that's there between the church and uh, from the church to Christ. And we just pray that, that we would be able to represent You in a way that You would be satisfied. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.